Hey, Carla. Uh, hey, Ashley. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? You are in LA now. Um, yes, I am. <laughs> it, it's not as sunny as someone fucking promised me. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of looks it looks sunny, but it's still cold. Um, yeah, I miss Pittsburgh. I'm so happy to be able to jump on this call and keep doing this project with you and it definitely keeps me you know focused and grounded and just like connected to my Pittsburgh roots I love it I'm glad you're here I'm glad we're going by coastal we miss you here but I'll be visiting at some point hell yeah you can count on it please do definitely So tell me a little bit about like how the process of moving has been for you because I'm about to move too so any any tips on staying grounded and calm during that time? Oh my goodness, um, such a good question. So I honestly just had to come to terms with the fact that my life was gonna be upended for about a month. Like my routine and my schedule, yeah, my daily life just stopped as far as like doing yoga and self-care. To me, it changes definitions every day. So self-care can be anything from like brushing your teeth you know, like first thing, and it's just like taking that moment and like recognizing it um, to, you know, going for a walk. So just being like hyper conscious and intentional about what I was, was and wasn't doing. So I, of course I miss like doing yoga first thing in the morning and like being able to take my time and make, and do things at my pace. But now I'm living with my partner and three other people that weren't in my previous um, living situation. So yeah, just having to adjust. Um, and as far as advice, yeah, just coming to terms with with that fact. Despite being like semi-organized with like boxes and labeling and packaging and everything, it, it's very chaotic. Um, and I had a, a my last therapy session, um, the woman I was talking to was saying that like, <laughs> I was suffering from some something called like a adjustment disorder, like Mm. in the book somewhere <laughs> and then she was like it's gonna take you six months and I was like oh my god so, yeah, <laughs> coming coming to terms with the reality that is just upended but resilience and patience like patience with a capital p because if it weren't for that I don't know what I like I would already be like it's already stressful, you know what I mean? So like without just like, yeah, centering every morning, just like, okay, like it's okay to not have everything set up right now. Yeah. Uh, that's um check-in topic for sure. But you're moving across town and, mm -hmm. that, and might not have to deal with moving, like some of the elements that I had to deal with moving cross country. <laughs> yes, I've moved a lot you know, in the last iteration of being in Pittsburgh. So, you know, it's always stressful, but I feel like it's a chance to start fresh, to get rid of some stuff and to just kind of keep things lighter. I think the worst part about it is, again, this whole pandemic has been about letting go for a lot of people, especially me. And it's just like, just when I think I've mastered the art of letting go and I'm like okay I'm good like I can handle this I can handle this change in my life it's like something else just 
hits me and it's like, I feel like I'm unable to handle it again. So I've been going through this like roller coaster of emotions in terms of letting go and just, I don't know, practicing, trying to practice gratitude and trying to focus on like the things that I want to nurture. And that's been sort of taking my idea of like losing quote unquote certain things, like certain places, certain people, certain relationships, that's sort of been helping me. But the, the logistics of moving are going smoothly and I, I feel like I'm on track. I'm about like a month out. So I've been spending my Saturdays like three to four hours just like sorting things, organizing things, unpacking. Yeah, that was so well put. Definitely. I love the idea of letting go and purging. I love the idea of it. It's the action of it that is challenging sometimes. (laughs) Yes. Maybe that's something we can talk to our guest about today. Yes, definitely. We'll definitely bring that up. Our guest today is Claire Welsh. Claire Welsh is an artist based in Pittsburgh, where she is a Cole Fellow at the University of Pittsburgh. She works and advocates for effective therapeutic treatments for addiction. Her essays and reviews have been published in Bright Wall, Dark Room, Nailed Magazine, Gigantic Sequence, and Offbeat Magazine. Her poems have been published in the Massachusetts Review, Salt Hill, the New Delta Review, and elsewhere. She has an MFA from the University of New Orleans. How do you know Claire, Carla? Well, Claire and I met at a poetry reading. We were both um, on the bill for, I want to say 2019, right? At the end of the year. And yeah, I was blown away by Claire's performance. And I think I maybe saw you um, at another like little like cafe reading. And then we like just started talking. At the time, I was really connected to um, a lot of poetry goings on around Pittsburgh. And I wanted to like share that. And since Claire and I had this like poetry thing in common, I invited her to like all of the things I was doing, (laughs) Um, (laughs) like the workshops, the, the readings, the salon that we're both in. Yeah, so that's how we met, just um, poetry connection and been hanging out ever since. But yeah, welcome cool. to the Bitty Coping Committee, Claire. We're so happy to have you. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for having me, Carla and Ashley. And yeah, I remember meeting you, Carla. I think the first time it was at the Glitterbox Theater, which RIP, I think, was one of the venues we shut down <laughs> during COVID-19, which is oh, yes. sad. It was such a nice little theater space. I remember at the reading, there was this backdrop that was like this big architectural drawing. And it looked like we were in like a Frank Lloyd Wright house or something. It was, <laughs> it was a great space. I'm sad to see it go. Actually, I wasn't even aware that it died. <laughs> yeah. It's really sad. Like, so another casualty. Things. Yeah, another casualty of, I've been hearing people say the panorama. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a hipster oh. like influencer thing. I don't know. It must be TikTok. Oh, I haven't heard that. Nope. The panorama. The panorama the panopticon <laughs> of the pandemic. It has been <laughs> rough out here. <laughs> yes. So Claire, um, I met you through Carla. We were at this like really fun party. It was like the week before everything got shut down. 
and yeah, that, um, Red Fishbowl. That's right. That's right. I think that was another reading that Carla curated. Was it? No, wait, that was um, March 10th, 2009, 2020. But then didn't we all go to like a Starship Mantis? We did. We um, did. Like yeah, there was, there was oh, a- Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. same week. And there were several things happening that week, down. apparently. Yeah. No, it's so strange. Um, have you all noticed my memory kind of stops at like March 2020? Like after that, I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, I don't know. I just spent a year inside. Uh, just the other week I was talking to my housemate and I said, when this happened last year, and then I caught myself immediately because it was 2021 and I was talking about 2019 as if 2020 hadn't existed at all. Mm-hmm. It's like time and space has just become totally irrelevant at this point. <laughs> right. I feel like the past year and a half, like I tried to make the best of it, but it was definitely like living in a horrific experimental novel, like the way time mm-hmm. passed. It was like a house of leaves. It would be like, sometimes time would be like five words on a page and sometimes time would just be like word vomit on a page and like I feel I feel yeah because looking back over the past year and a half I'm just like what was that I I don't know but here we are (laughs) Claire how did you I'm interested to learn how you how you have been spending your quarantine and how your life looked different before the quarantine and during the quarantine. Yeah, so um, I moved to Pittsburgh about a couple months before everything shut down. I'm from the area, I'm from Indiana County, but I have like family roots in the city, but I'd been living in New Orleans for, I guess like six years before I moved back here. So when I got back here, I was really interested in trying to like find those artistic communities because the last time like I'd been in the area, I'd been like in high school. Like I didn't know what was Mm. what, you know? And so I felt like before the pandemic, I was, I was working at a coffee shop in Squirrel Hill and at night doing poetry and art stuff. Um, and just like putting myself out there a lot, going to a bunch of shows, um, And then, you know, just as things were like starting to pick up, I had a really cool gig at Alphabet City, um, the orchestra thing Carla (laughs) organized, which was incredible. I think the day after that things shut down and it was just um, an intense year. I feel like um, I'm also a photographer. So my work immediately shifted from photographing other people to self portraiture, Mm -hmm. um, which, was interesting. I've always done a little bit of that. Maybe that's been like one fourth of my body of work, but it became like maybe half of my body of Mm. work during the pandemic. Um, Stayed inside a lot, tried to go out for long hikes. Um, I was also in school for um, my MSW through Pitt and doing Zoom school was very strange for me. Um, I know some people learn better that way. I'm bad at object permanence. I need to see and hear and like feel bodies around me to, to know they're real. So I've struggled with it. I made good grades, but it was it was a struggle for sure. Um, but I am in a way thankful for the introspection I had. I feel like it was good for me to force myself to slow down, so. And you're living, I'm really curious also because you're living in a studio apartment, is that right? 
Uh, that's right, my little cave in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm moving into a studio apartment myself, so that's why I'm especially curious. Like, how did you make your space welcoming and like, how did you make it feel like spacious and energized and creative in a pandemic? Mm, that's a really good question. Oh, well, you know, I'm not sure if I ever really succeeded at that, but I did try. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I got, got a bunch of plants, um, kept them by the window. I would get fresh flowers, um, just mm. things to make it feel alive. I put a bunch of my art up. I had a bunch of framed photographs from a show I had done in New Orleans. Um, and so I hung up some of those and was happy to say I didn't get sick of them, which I think is the good litmus test for your art. If you can have it on your wall and still not get sick of it, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I also like put that. up some photos by some friends, some art by some friends. I have a photograph from a Los Angeles photographer, my friend Elizabeth O'Rourke here, I really like. I have another portrait by a friend, um, Alison Cujo. And I think, you know, just keeping those reminders of friends around was really, really good for me. But, you know, I do struggle with space management. Like I have a couple guitars and instruments and they're like all shoved into the bed which is shoved into a bunch of spare books which is shoved into the bathroom which is shoved into the kitchen so it's like I it's a work in progress always I would say <laughs> yeah. it makes me think of uh, a room of her own you know um always and I, that's something I'm struggling with because I share a room with my partner so I'm just like, that's your little corner and this is my room. Yeah. <laughs> and then luckily <laughs> he doesn't really care, but it, it is so important to have like that working space. And Claire, I was lucky enough to visit your space a couple times. That's right, yeah. Hanging out. And um, I always loved when you showed me the things on your altar. Oh, right, mm. yeah. I also have a tiny non-working fireplace that I use for my altar and... I also think energetically having that hearth is good too for me um, and for my spiritual practice. So yeah, you know, little things like that, I'd say, but nine out of 10 days, it is a mess in here. So <laughs> what is on your altar and what is your spiritual practice? If you could describe it. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a, um, buffet spiritualist. I pick up things from a lot of different traditions that resonate with me. Um, all of them are ancestral, though, in one way or another. Um, so my family is, you know, Celtic, Irish, Welsh. So I have a horse skull from the Welsh goddess um, Odaikia there. I have, um, let me see, what else is over there? I'm looking at it now. I have some uh, deer bones I have some uh, candles I have oh I have a lot of candles I have a coyote doll which was gifted to my mom by a native artist I have a bunch of dried flowers I have a chalice and uh, you know little pieces of jewelry too especially jewelry that friends make. I don't wear much jewelry, but the pieces that I do have, I do, I would say I have a bit of a spiritual connection to. They're like that important to me. Um, so they're very much like power pieces that I'll wear sometimes. I keep on there. 
I also keep some guitar strings on there, you know, hoping the gods will bless me perhaps. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's about it. <laughs> Amazing. I love that you said buffet spiritualist. I've never had <laughs> a term just resonate with like my own spirituality so deeply, honestly, like, yeah, it was always just like a collage of the things that um, I kind of just like cherry pick from different spiritualities and different approaches to like this I don't even want to use the word religion but yeah um yeah I feel like a lot of the objects are special to me because they were given to me by special people so that's why they are there the horse skull in particular came from like an Indiana County horse farm like around where I grew up so that keeps me grounded and keeps me humble I think so yeah (laughs) nice yeah and speaking of space and is that where you do a lot of your self-portraits, your, your photography? Sometimes. Um, my parents still have a house there. It's a really old house. It was built in 1900. And the interiors of that house are very interesting to me, just from another time. And I think they also just recall a lot of the experiences and legacies of women artists, you know, from the Victorian period period up. Um, I'm someone who's very much inspired by Francesca Woodman, for example, as a photographer. Um, oh, I love her work. Oh, it's so good, it's right? Like, like ghostly and... Mm-hmm. So I was doing a lot of self-portraits there during quarantine, whenever like my service industry job had shut down, I just would go back and visit and take photos out in the woods or in the house there. Um, I feel like I'm very much attached to that house. And I feel like as a writer and a reader, I'm very much drawn to stories about houses, about haunted houses, about how a childhood house can just hold all these stories. I think it definitely has affected my work in one way or another. I feel like from the photography that I have seen of yours, which I love it, it's amazing. And haunting is absolutely one of the words that I would use to describe your style, at least how it resonated with me. And I know that you do a lot of photography in black and white. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your choice to shoot a lot in black and white and how that is different from color in your mind? I feel like when I am doing a shoot, I'll usually take some in black and white and some in color. And then afterwards, I'll sort of look to see what I think works better. But the thing about color is it always tells a story, like reds tell a story, blues tell a different story. And sometimes that could get in the way of something else you want to say. And so with black and white, when you strip out the story of color, you're left with the story of light and shadow and composition. And it's a way of stripping things back that I kind of appreciate. I also think just on a pure aesthetic basis, there's something a little more classical about it that I really like, like a timelessness to it. I was really inspired in my early 20s by the films of um, Bergman, did like the seventh seal and the black and whites in those films is just incredible like the gradients the contrast and the story they tell is just I think I was very much inspired by that movie as I as I am by many movies but in the case of the black and white photography I would say Bergman was a principal inspiration for me. And you've done a lot of work that sort of blends video with photography which is really neat. What's something that you've been working on lately in that regard? 
yeah, so over quarantine, I was working in a bunch of different mediums. Um, I started to get more into making noise music, which I fought for many years to not be someone who makes noise music because I always <laughs> felt it was like this extremely macho, pretentious, gate-kept genre. But then once I sort of got out of the shadow of that masculine presence and started doing it on my own terms, it was extremely liberating and very much a container for a lot of overwhelming experiences that a melody can't really hold. Things like rage or things like trauma or things like sorrow. I think that's what drew me to it. And once I started looking, I found an incredible tradition of women working in noise or working in sound. And yeah, I just fell into it. So I started having those compositions and I was shooting some video at the same time when I was doing shoots. And I was like, what if I combined the noise with the video? And then I started doing that. And then I would start layering a poem on top of it. And the poem would sort of act as a melody would act in a traditional song. Like that would be the one little thread of clear story, the path through the wilderness of noise. And mm -hmm. I think I just really enjoyed that contrast. It's fun to put music to video. I feel like they, the visuals bring something out of the music and the music brings something out of the video that they can't do on their own. But when you put them together, you get almost like a third story, which is exciting to me. So it sounds like it's also a way of that you brought femininity into noise music. Yeah. Various layers. Yeah. I feel like my poems kind of speak from my own feminine experience and a lot of the videos so far I am very feminine presenting almost like hyper feminine to the point of like burlesque or drag <laughs> in these videos but I just shot some stuff where I am actually not the subject which is very exciting um and ex I'm excited to make some make some music and some poetry about faces and characters that are not my face. So um, that'll be exciting. You know, I feel like I put in the time to get to know my face over quarantine and I do not need to get to know her anymore for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have a follow-up question about that. So yeah, I, I follow your work on social media and um, objectively like a big fan. And um, but also I noticed that you captioned one of your noise music video excerpts as noise poems. So is there a choice versus noise music and noise poem or is it interchangeable? Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where it could be arbitrary, but for me as a poet, that is more what my expertise in than the music itself. So I think I am wanting people to see it as a poem, which, you know, poetry was an oral musical tradition before it was ever written down. And I think there's this part of me that wants to get back to that. And even when I'm writing for the page, I'm always reading out loud to see how it sounds. And I think that's where that decision came from, you know, for it to be seen as a poet. And also like, if I call it, if I call it a song, I don't want to deal with like, the comments of like the noise community about it, you know, about its authenticity, about whatever. So I think, you know, part of my, part of me was protecting myself because at least in my experience, um, the poetry community is a little more nice than like the macho noise community. And poetry 
like these days is moving towards a more mixed media interactive I would say yeah like expression in a way sometimes as a poet myself I'm kind of like oh I'm still very much on the page like I'm way behind or like a lot of people are doing like you yourself are like yeah a noise poem is really innovative and a couple other poets I follow are kind of doing the um the book that you just said earlier the uh the house of the house of leaves was it leaves yeah, yeah like I remember when it was so revolutionary to have like a poem that that wasn't like horizontal not horizontal but like perpendicular to like the the seam of the book does that yeah. make sense and then yeah just like the shape or the visual poems and I think another Eloisa Emasqua is like it has some poems that have been published like the visual element um of like the words kind of scrambled on the page and yeah that's super cool um I know you like are just now kind of dabbing into it but yeah I can't wait to see like how your work evolves I think it's going to evolve into screamo next. Oh my God. I think that's what what's going to happen next, and I'm I'm excited to go there. I'm ready to go there. So I think the next poem is going to be a screamo poem. So like, yeah, because like fuck the rules, honestly, and <laughs> the gatekeepers, and like fuck the canon, all of that. But I'm, I honestly wish I could be there when you take this screamo poem to a workshop. <laughs> Like, oh no yeah. I could never <laughs> yes. I could never I feel like I I could not show my heart that way I, I just have to do it and put it out there and like hope for the best um <laughs> you know it's interesting I I am aware of how like atonal and how mm, maybe pretentious my work is coming across now but it also just feels so right so I'm just gonna embrace it and um half of me is laughing at myself as I do this and the other half is sincere and that's sort of where I'm at right now with it so yeah you know I have a couple of questions about that specifically the first question is you seem to have a lack of self-consciousness in front of the camera all of your images are really bold I'm especially thinking of your self-photography is that the same in real life are you really that bold and like self-confident um you know, I'm not sure. I feel like around people I've known, I'm definitely that way. Um, around other artists, definitely. I think it really depends on the context I find myself in. Um, mm -hmm. And I really do like treasure the friendships I have or like the communities I have where I can just like be my entire silly self. You know, I can be the meme lord, I can be <laughs> the noise musician, I can be the poet, and like, there is space for me to be all aspects of myself at once. I feel like much of the world, you know, because we have to make money or, or because we <laughs> just have to, we have to sort of censor ourselves a little bit. And I definitely do that in certain professional contexts, but you know, I think there's this part of myself that is just incorrigible and is going to come out no, no matter what. I, I like it. I think it's really <laughs> empowering. And that's why I was kind of curious about that. Yeah. My second question about your images relates more to, I don't know how to word this exactly, but something that I've been struggling with during the pandemic is self-absorption. Mm -hmm. Meaning becoming so extremely self-aware because we're like in lockdown and like you can't see your friends and you can't reflect things back to yourself through other people. I think it's really easy to get stuck in your head and 
self-absorbed meaning extremely self-aware to the point of like rumination Mm. and maybe this is a question that can sort of lead into your work like social work and Mm -hmm. and things like that but but how do you avoid that negative form of self-absorption in your art or through your art especially when you're taking images like of yourself right so I actually feel like the work saves me from that rumination. It's what interrupts, you know, the looping thought. And the way I avoid that is to make something, I would say, mm-hmm. whether it's photography or writing. I know sometimes when I'm feeling anxious, I don't know what I'm actually feeling until I write it down, whether that's as a poem or just as a journal entry. And so in a way, like, I'm one of those artists who like is always going to be busy. That's not saying that everything I make is going to be good. Um, I'd say like, I'm definitely someone who has to make a lot of garbage before I make like one good thing. That's just my process. But like, I will definitely always be busy because that process is sort of what helps me cope with those anxious thoughts for sure. Yeah, you're very prolific. And I think that's a lot of what artists are advised to do often. Um, but I don't see a lot of it, artists being successful at it. I think a lot of them, myself included, can get like stuck in that self-critical state where you're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't good enough. This isn't like reaching what I, this isn't what, looking like what I want it to look like. Mm-hmm. This isn't my vision, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you just scrap it this instead might, of making something. Right. And this might sound a little egotistical, but whatever. I feel like something that saved me from that is one time I was reading the New York Times and I read the most stupid opinion piece. It was like poorly (laughs) written. It was a bad, wrong opinion. And I was like, this (laughs) appeared in one of the premier legacy publications and it's bad, it's shit. And it made me realize that, you know, it was one of those moments where I'm like, I am better than this. (laughs) so like why am I afraid if this person who wrote this bad thing got published in the New York Times then certainly I can you know sit down and make a photograph or sit down and write a poem and you know in the eye of the beholder maybe other people read that essay and thought it was great obviously the editor did they published it but (laughs) for me it was one of those moments of like there is so much bad art out there so much bad art, so much bad art by good artists too. Mm. And I feel like every favorite author of mine has a book that I'm like not entirely crazy about, but I'm still glad that they did it, you know, or like every band has an album. Neil Young, for example, has (laughs) the best and the worst album of like the 20th century. He had a couple albums that I think were bad on purpose because he was trying to break up with his record company or something, but... (laughs) Regardless, he put it out there. And I just, I enjoy that. I enjoy the honesty of making bad art. And there's always the possibility that, you know, 99% of people will find your art bad, but that 1% who likes it will probably really like it. It'll be just like niche enough that they'll be stoked to have found it. So I feel like that's sort of what's always saved me is just remembering the mountain of bad art out there and just not being afraid to add my bad art to the mountain of bad art. <laughs> mm, I love that. I'm, I was 
sort of walking around my room trying to find this book that I just started reading, which is about how to write a book. And <laughs> it's by Heather Sellers, who I've taken some workshops with. And she says like the same thing you're saying, which is like, if you want to write a book, you got to sit down, write the book. And after all of that time and toil, it's probably going to suck. And then you're going to put it under the bed and then you're going to start your next book. And, you know, you're just going to learn the process of writing books because, you know, if you're going to be a writer and you want to write books, she advocates you're going to want to write multiple books. Like once you learn how to write a book, the process will come to you smoother, but you will always have those under the bed books. I very much relate to that. Um, For my MFA thesis, I wrote a book of visual poetry um, I guess I've always been sort of pretentious now that I think about it. So, um, and, you know, I'm glad I wrote it. It was an important book for me to write, but that is never going to see the light of day. But it was the book I needed to write, to write the manuscript I'm now sending out. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's just another instance of having to write a lot of garbage before I actually make something good. <laughs> Yeah, that's part of being authentic, right? There's a lot of, um, like, in the spiritual community, the self-help community, you know, the therapy community, I've been hearing a lot about the process of being authentic, right? So, like, what does that mean? And then you just described how, like, you're, you contain multitudes, you know, and it's also, like, very relatable and, like, yes, so do I from one minute to the next part of the being authentic process is like putting that out there and that seems like um like yeah I love your approach like adding some shitty art to the huge pile of shitty art that's already out there but then knowing knowing that you're that you can do better or like knowing that you have a place and you're carving out that space because you are talented you know what I mean you're not just gonna because I feel like there are some people out there that are so prolific and they're just like mediocre but somehow they know the right person they know the right editor they have these connections and we're over here kind of like just struggling to to like carve out that space for ourselves you know right I'm thinking of specifically like branded Instagram poetry Mm. where it's like we all know it's bad we see it being bad but it has um, it has great marketing and great PR and there are thousands if not millions of people who read that and they're like this is good this speaks Mm. to me and I feel like that's also another reminder for myself where it's like dear god like if if this can be popular I can certainly sit down and write something today (laughs) I love that. That's like a great kick in your own butt, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Just get it done. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something about like that being your part of like a a coping process in a way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Something I had to do as well. Um, I, I, I don't even know what to call it. So I just started journaling for like 15 minutes a day, knowing that it's trash but yeah, it's a total coping mechanism. And sometimes I have these like really high expectations of myself, like say the previous entry was like really good and like poetic and um, I don't know, it, it exposed something about like my inner life that I was trying to figure out. And then the next day it could just totally be like me, like in real time, that kind of coping mechanism 
doing it in an open way. You know what I mean? Just like being open to the process because no one's ever going to see these entries. At least I hope not. And if they do, like my entire, all my secrets are like totally exposed. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's really helped. It's really helped. Um, that's something I started doing over quarantine, making use of a shit ton of empty journals that I have a drawer full of. So might as well use them. All the stocking stuffers I've ever gotten. <laughs> journal. Go-to go gift for a writer. I get journals every year for my birthday or for Christmas, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Well, before we run out of time, I wanted to touch on, so besides being a prolific photographer, poet, noise poem maker, um, you're also going to school and you mentioned um, getting your MSW. Yeah. Yes. And so that is in the mental health field. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So a couple years ago, I decided I wanted to go back to school to be a therapist. Um, at the time, I was working in an art gallery, and it was a really glamorous job. I actually did like it a lot, but um, I think there was this part of me that felt kind of empty inside. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, as someone who had a pretty tough coming of age, like I just wanted to be the sort of adult that a kid like me could have used at that time so that's what I set out to do and I moved back here to go to school um, at Pitt and got a fellowship um, specifically to work with people with addiction specifically with opiate use disorders which are a big problem in Pennsylvania I'm sure everyone knows someone who's been affected you know it's that much of a problem so yeah that's what I've been doing I just finished up my first internship and you know it's interesting a lot of people not writers but other mental health professionals will sometimes ask me like that seems like a big change to go from like a creative field to um this field and for me it never it felt like a very natural change mm. um there's even a whole type of therapy modality called narrative therapy um which is mm. sort of a way it's sort of like an adaptation of Jungian psychology. It helps people make sense of their life through telling the story of their life or finding a way to put the events that have happened in their life in context. And I feel like the psychological processes that we as writers go under to do what we have to do to get in touch with our emotions or if we're fiction writers or just writing fictional characters to imagine and put ourselves in the shoes of someone else all those all those skills transfer very easily to being a therapist so yeah wow mm, I love that that is so interesting yeah that's incredible I especially love the fact that like yeah wanting to in a way be a role model you know it what how you were saying like if when you were coming of age like having someone that you could approach or or, you know, have conversations with, or like, yeah, just, just a role model. Um, I found myself saying that too, but in where, where I'm working, there's a, pro a program called Girls Write, and it, it evolved to like Pittsburgh Writes, and I think they have different um, reiterations of that workshop, but it's, like, their target audience is like young girls, 
Mm-hmm. So it made me str- like, wow, if when I was young, you know, like that would have been so cool to be in like a, t- a, wor- a workshop of like 12 year olds, but yeah. I was not. <laughs> it was a very lonely coming of age. But um, yeah, that was so, so cool. I, I love that. And like you've always, knowing you, we've always talked about, um, uh, yeah, like mental health. So you've had this interest for a long time, seems like. Yeah. And, you know, I think also like as someone who has had my own mental health problems, I mean, don't we all, um, there was a part of me that wanted to get maybe kind of a grip on that more too, before I went back to school to be a point of contact for other people. But, you know, something else I've learned about that is like, I don't think anyone is ever fully healed. There's a snake oil that gets sold, especially over like Instagram therapy modalities which is that you have to be healed. You have to be, like we were saying the word authentic earlier, but those are sort of ever evolving goalposts. And I feel like just being able to accept a lot of the death and negativity and struggle of the world is like, that's just as necessary as the other half. Mm. Acceptance is hugely helpful. Right. I have a jar. I have an acceptance jar that I learned from a book, another self-help book. And um, whatever you're trying to accept, you just write it on a slip of paper and put it in the acceptance jar. And like the act of doing that is incredible. It's um, having a physical thing is, I can see that being very helpful. I feel like ironically a lot of my creative work comes from an inability to accept a lot of things inability to accept grief is a big one Mm -hmm. which you know poets have been doing that since Orpheus like raging against the void so I feel like you know I kind of wrestle my inability to accept out in my creative work Mm -hmm. for sure yeah so I have a question. It's sort of a little bit off topic, but it, it's I'm I wanted to see if you could speak to Zoom classrooms as a social work student. Like, was there anything put in place? Because we we all know that that can be not the greatest way to learn. You talked about that a little bit earlier, and just like the inherent unhealthiness of like sitting all day and like staring at a screen all day like was there anything put in place for social work students in particular to like balance your to help with your own mental health while you were doing remote learning I mean not officially by the university Um, I think maybe they had like a couple emails with empty statements or something you know which is It's not like I'm putting pit on blast for this. (laughs) I think every single university was caught off guard. Oh yeah. Really didn't, did what they could, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, The way I coped with it is, you know, I kept seeing my therapist once a week um, and I just prioritized time to do what I love, you know? Um, I was sort of lucky that my internship was all in person working with people with all different age groups um, in a partial hospitalization program at a federally qualified healthcare clinic um, in Washington County. So I feel like I, through that internship, got the education that I wanted, but had it all been virtual, I probably would have deferred. Um, Mm. I, especially when you are thinking of things like 
you know, just body language. What is it like 70% of our communication is body language. And, you know, pros and cons of telehealth pro being it is much more accessible to a lot of people who maybe can't make the drive. I like it for that. However, as someone who is like specifically interested in working with people with, you know, traumatic stress disorders, um, you have to be able to see someone's body. You have to be able to see like, if you accidentally fuck up and say something wrong, you see how they react. You see how they're carrying themselves. All of this is really hard to read over Zoom. And I kind of look past on the back here as a bunch of people maintaining like the telehealth being like almost like a bit of a line to sanity, like, you know, just that check-in. Um, but for example, I kept on seeing my therapist in person because like, especially having my like tiny cave of a studio apartment, like I'm not gonna do therapy in here. <laughs> I need to have that, that third space um, to go and, and do the work. So yeah, that's my thoughts on that, I'd say. Well, yeah, that's really excellent. I was taking notes while you were talking and I've been listening to this woman on YouTube. Um, she goes by the name of Teal Swan. I don't know if you all have heard of her. My other friend turned me on to, um, so she's like a mental health spiritualist. Um, but yeah, she talks about manifesting certain things and, and like meditating and having like ritual and like power dynamics and like but she also has videos that are like what do men really want so <laughs> with a grain of salt of course oh um, gotta get that seo working yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh i like to listen to it in the morning as i'm doing mm -hmm. a couple chores around the house and just uh she talks about resisting resistance so you, you were talking about how like, you know, that's part of your process, like what you were saying earlier about um, not being able to cope with certain emotions. So part of your creative process is possibly like processing that, right? Like putting it out there as a, um, as an outlet. If anybody's curious, we could put it in the show notes, Teal Swan um, on YouTube. Um, pretty interesting lady. Apparently, um, she escaped from a cult in like Idaho and then turned into like a spiritualist uh, influencer. And she has some really um, interesting points on, or interesting viewpoints, I should say, on um, trigger warnings, suicide. But um, yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a, it's a whole mental health um, rabbit hole that I've been going down, but also not falling into the trap of... Um, how we were talking about like Instagram influencers and social media poetry and like how these things are very much like watered down and very like dumbed down to, you know mm -hmm. what I mean and if I were to sit here and maybe scroll for 15 minutes and and the algorithm was like okay yeah you're into mental health and whatever and it started giving me profiles of like what to do like affirmations in the morning and you know do your um your altar ritual like I would have no time in the day for real life if I were to follow every one of those things that I've seen you know what I mean so like like taking what serves me and like leaving the rest is definitely something I've personally learned from um therapy and yoga actually and so yeah I'm definitely and we're kind of like back full circle to this like buffet spiritualism in a way because I'm definitely picking and choosing 
affirmations in the morning are great. Do I do it every day? No, I, I don't know. Like, no, <laughs> but if someone were to tell me like the benefits of doing it every day and like maybe some, someone else in real life was in real life, I guess I'm saying like not zoom or social media, um, was maybe telling me like the benefits of it or something like that. Um, and back to the thing you were saying, Ashley, about um, self-absorption and um, reflection, like there's no one during 2020, like I wasn't really ref being reflected and like people weren't, ref and I think we've talked about this in other episodes too, where like coworkers or friends, they're just like, weren't there. So I was totally in a, in a weird, um, like hyper rumination. And like, now I'm kind of getting out of it, but I'm coping with the attachment that I generated from like all that me time super weird whoa that's so interesting ah and I it was, <laughs> and I was as I was talking um I kind of realized that so thank mm -hmm. you for giving me the safe space to talk about it <laughs> yeah well um usually for our episodes we like to ask um if you might have any free therapy tips for our listeners um, something that you've learned along the way or as a blossoming therapist yourself if you wanted to give us a little free 99 advice yeah. <laughs> I have it's actually advice from a poet Mary Oliver and it's you don't have to be good um, I feel like there's a lot of almost a Victorian pressure to be virtuous and it really sets up people to fail and to hate themselves. Um, so one, you don't have to be good. Two, sort of from the perspective I'm coming from as someone who's interested in working with addiction is it's not what you do, it's what you do about what you do, which I think is been important for me personally in like being accountable for the own, for the ways I fucked up. But also like when you are, you know, observing what sort of people you wanna let into your life, watch how gracefully they handle the times they fuck up, you know, and also try to handle gracefully the times you fuck up. Um, because yeah, that's, it's important. <laughs> that's so good. I love Mary Oliver. Thank you for <laughs> um, summoning that muse. I, that's something else we've also talked about. It's kind of an ongoing through line, like accountability and like grace, Mm -hmm. and like navigating these like new social spaces too because I remember actually mm -hmm. we were talking about how like it's the new um roaring 20s right so yesterday things in LA are opening back up and I'm seeing poster signs for like welcome back inside and I stood in a line a 35 minute line to get into a club and I got there and it was like not worth it <laughs> so like that's my new life and um North Hollywood but um all that to say is that yeah just like I guess like re-entering society and like yeah this is like maybe some free advice like for listeners and maybe I need to hear myself say it but just not letting go of what I learned over quarantine and some of those coping mechanisms that definitely helped me and I'm a whole I'm a whole new person I think I'm a, I'm a more aware, more present. I mean, I think I'm nicer. I don't know these days. <laughs> I don't know. That's just me. Um, <laughs> just accountability, like self-accountability too. And like, yeah, watching others and seeing how, and it, and like setting boundaries 
you know, all of these recurring themes that I, I love to talk about, and we could probably go on for hours talking about them. And I have talked to both of you individually about these things for hours. Um, any last thoughts or anything about art or um, mental health or social care that you want to share with us at all? Or I would love also, if not, um, where can the people find your work? And we can include that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so uh, two things. One is I messed up earlier when I said my horse skull on my altar was for Bodikia. It's for Epona. Um, you know, it being a live recording, I sort of stressed and named a mortal figure from history and not a goddess. So <laughs> in case like any like Welsh nerds are listening and are like, <laughs> Uh, that's really weird. I just wanted to make that like annotated correction. My mind tends to blank when I talk about spiritual stuff. So like I probably messed up there. But anyways, my work, you could just like find me on Instagram or Twitter probably. And that's like where I tend to post when I get things published or when I make a new video or a new song or something. So is it your name, Claire Welsh? Yes, at Claire Welsh. At Claire Welsh. Yeah. K-L-A-R-E. Okay, um, C-L-A-R-E-W-E-L-S-H. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Claire, thank you so much for your time. This yes. evening. Thanks for talking this to was... me. This was great to be here. So yeah, we really appreciate it. I love the conversation. This was super fun. And I super miss you, both of you. And yes. you, you can visit me anytime. Well, I'll talk to you guys later. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Ciao. It looks so sunny in California there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, She was telling me that she has a banana tree outside of her door. Oh, yeah, there's a banana tree. You got to watch out for rats with those things. Because they're like rat hotels. Really? Yeah, there was one. um, I had one outside of my house in New Orleans. And, like, the rats would jump from the banana tree to the roof and that was how they would get into our house um, so definitely harvest those fruit before <laughs> the rats get them <laughs>